Hello there. Welcome. It is Eric Erickson here, the Eric Erickson Show across the nation. Glad to have you with me. The phone number, if you want to be on the show program, 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. I got to back up a little bit, and I didn't expect to have to do this, and I wasn't going to plan on doing this, but I, I feel like I need to. Uh, given the amount of, uh, I guess I should say, what was conversation I've had with you guys, for lack of a better word, because it hasn't just been emails. I've been trying to engage with everyone, and I, I've become, to this point, overwhelmed. And so I, I feel like I, and I really wasn't prepared for it. I, I had a, a flippant moment the other day where I I, I I don't like to talk about myself that much on the program than I did, and, and it struck a chord with people, and I feel like i got to revisit it uh, now that I've had time to really think about it. I mentioned the other day, the 11th to be precise, that it was my 11th anniversary on radio. You know, I never intended to be in radio. I, I really did not intend to be in radio. I am not a radio guy. I don't think it's funny for people who come up to me and say, oh, you have a voice for radio. Do you know that when I first started in radio, one of the big complaints is that I did not have a voice for radio. I was annoying to listen to. They didn't like my voice. I was very self-conscious about it. I have changed my voice, but now, so, oh, you've got a voice for radio. Yeah, I got a face for print too. I was a lawyer. I practiced law for five, six years in Macon, Georgia, went to Mercer University Law School, really didn't want to practice law. I wanted to go to Washington, D.C. I went to law school because then-Congressman, future Senator Saxby Chambliss, told me it was the MBA for politics. You want to go into politics in Washington, go to law school. So I did. And as a lawyer, I started running campaigns around the country, became a political operative, a campaign manager. I did polling. I did ads. I mean, I did everything and wound up being a campaign strategist for uh, federal and state and local campaigns, was a volunteer attorney for President Bush in his reelection in 2004. And in 2004, a lady from MSNBC called, and I was helping run redstate.com at the time, became the editor of Red State, had helped get it off the ground. They wanted someone on the right to come cover the election in 2004 up in uh, New York. Secaucus, New Jersey was where they were headquartered at the time. And they had a, a couple of left-wing bloggers. They wanted one conservative and a couple of lefties. Uh, and so I volunteered. My, my uh, The guys at Red State told me to do it. I did it. And it was my first brush with television, and I loved it. It was a lot of fun. And then they went off the deep end, and I never heard from them again. Went back to practicing law. And uh, one day, uh, one of the lawyers in the law firm came in. I don't even know that he remembers this conversation. But he came in and closed the door. And he looked at me and he said, do you know what the definition of a dumb blankety blank is? And I said, nope. And he said, you. And he looked at me and he said, you do not like practicing law. You need to find a way to go do politics. So I started looking. It was, it was the swift kick in the rear that I needed. And I started looking and I found a job in Washington working for the National Rural Electric Cooperative Association. This was at the height of blogging. And they wanted someone to do a blog. And so I took the job. It was the most money I'd ever made in my life. Uh, I was barely making money as a lawyer. We were struggling, my wife and me. Oh, we really were. Uh, and I was on the uh, a year from being a partner. And I really didn't want to be a partner because I didn't want to have to absorb the cost within the partnership. 
anyway, I didn't really want to be a lawyer. I, I, I loved the degree. The degree was worth it for me. The, the relearning how to think and how to write and how to argue has really helped me even in radio. But I didn't want to do it. And I got this job in Washington. It was great. For a year, I flew back and forth from Macon, Georgia to Washington, D.C. One day, four days. One day, three days. Back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. It was miserable. The job was horrible. Uh, I would write something about what the, the, so the NRECA, National Rural Electric Cooperative Association, kind of like the trade association for local EMCs, energy uh, membership companies around the country. And I would write about what they were doing and it would go to the external vice president and the internal vice president and the 10 uh, deputy vice presidents of each and three weeks later come back and it was completely out of date. And this went on for almost a year. Glenn English, congressman from Oklahoma, Democrat, uh, was the head of the NRECA. And I finally went to him one day and I said, Glenn, I'm not your lawyer, but if I was your lawyer, I'd tell you to fire the blogger. Your business those underneath you do not want me here. They, it's not that they don't want me. They don't want this. This is a waste of your resources. And he said, go find, spend a couple of months, find yourself a new job. We'll pay you. And we started putting ads at Red State and money went through the roof. We had no idea. We were the only conservative group blog out there. You had Daily Coast and others on the left. We were the only thing like it on the right. We're making money hand over fist. Republicans controlled Congress. We were going great. And then the election in twenty six er, or 2006 happened, and it wiped us out. Money went to zero. Nobody wanted to put ads on a site of a Republican group blog, conservative blog, when they didn't run Congress anymore, and the money went away. And I got fired on the same day my wife was given six months to live. And it turns out I was fired, but she was misdiagnosed, thank God week before Christmas, no less. And a few days later, after we had realized she had been misdiagnosed, a group in Washington called and they wanted to buy Red State. I was, I, and so I wound up getting a three-year deal with them and it lasted for 10 years. Now, along the way, a lady at CNN called. There's the lady who had called from MSNBC and I guess I said she called from MSNBC. She really didn't. They sent an email. This time she called and she says, my name is Michelle. You don't know me, but I was in charge of getting you at MSNBC back in 2004. I am now at CNN working with John King on a new TV show, and we would love to have you at CNN as a political contributor. And what was so funny about this is my wife and I had decided, given her health, she, she wasn't going to die after this thing in 2006, but by 2009 when this happened, I hadn't had a pay raise from this new company that bought Red State. I hadn't had a pay raise in, at all. They bought it at the beginning of 2007. Uh, we were living on my wife's insurance plan. She was the assistant to the president of my alma mater, Mercy University. And she he had become the chancellor. She was still with him. And she was ready to stay home with the kids because she didn't have health problems and she wanted to be with the kids. And I was like, all right. So I'm, I go get an application to sell suits at Dillard's. I can go work at night at Dillard's. And I can make enough money to offset the loss of insurance because I couldn't get insurance with the folks in Washington because I was in Atlanta and they were in D.C. And their insurance, you had to be in D.C. Otherwise, you were out of network. And so it was super expensive. So I got that application and lo and behold, here comes CNN saying, would you like to work for us? And so I did. And I was with CNN in 2010 during the Republican wave, doing TV. In fact, my uh, big election night on CNN in 2010, I did 
26 straight hours of television, and that's not a lie. Uh, I started uh, the night of the election and never stopped until sometime after 10 p.m. the next night on Anderson Cooper's show when the Jim Walton, who was the head of CNN at the time, happened to call up to New York and say, why is this guy still on? And um, they they finally took me off. I was punch drunk by then. I had had like an hour to eat in those 26 hours, but it was so much fun. I loved it. I genuinely loved it. And while all of that was happening, I got a call from a guy named Greg Mosheri uh, on behalf of Cox Media Group uh, because while all of that was going on, down here in Macon, the local talk show host got arrested in a crack house. He claimed he was making a music label with some guys. They were on using drugs. He got arrested. They needed someone to fill in. And I had been on a couple of times talking about elections. And they asked, would you fill in for this guy for a day uh, while we get all this sorted out? And I said, sure. So I went in. uh, I filled in for the guy for a day. I'd never done talk radio before except one time. One single day I filled in uh, the day after Christmas back in, I guess, 2004, 2005 for then Kenny Bergamy, who was the, the voice of middle Georgia for years. He had stepped away. This guy had come in. And now this guy was in jail. And I was there for a day. It became the rest of the week. And then it became three months because he got fired and they didn't have anybody. I was like, sure, I'm enjoying it. It's miserable. I'm not a morning person, 6 a.m. to 9 a.m. And I got paid in an expired gift certificate now back steakhouse. But while I was there, this guy, Greg Mosheri, calls. The people at Cox had heard me. They thought it was my show. Herman Cain was running for president. They needed someone to fill in for Herman Cain. The person they thought was going to be like the ultimate replacement for Neil Bortz on WSB, uh, they, they had dismissed. He got a job elsewhere, actually crossed paths with me here in Macon. And I got Herman Cain's job. And I had been on radio ever since. January 11th, and I had did not tell them until after my contract was signed that I really was not a radio person. I had no experience in radio. The only reason I was there was that guy got arrested. I had never done a radio show in my life. And now, fast forward, and when my friend Rush Limbaugh passed away, I got put into his spot noon to three on WSB and now self-syndicate my show. It's hard work to do self-syndication. I'm not aligned with a Westwood One or a Premier or anyone like that. I do it myself, but it's it's a joy, and, and the ratings are great, and I love it. Now, I tell you all of that to say this. I never expected to be here, and there were times in my life where I was genuinely, truly miserable in my work. I hated being a lawyer. I hated getting up every day and going to that office. I despised it. And I had student loans to pay and wasn't making a lot of money. There have been times in my life where I've been miserable in my job. There have been wild cards in my life that came out of the blue and saved me from that misery. And a lot of people will say it's luck or something. I would say it's providence. So I'm reminded, and it's one of my favorite passages of Scripture, in Genesis 15, God gives the covenant with Abram, and he says, Know for certain your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there. They will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterwards they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You'll be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquities of the Amorites is not yet complete. So the Israelites 
they get to Egypt. Now, how do they get to Egypt? They get to Egypt because you fast forward several generations from Abram, Abram, Isaac, Jacob, and you get to Jacob and he's got these kids and they don't like Joseph, their brother, and they sell him into slavery. And he winds up being carted off to Egypt where he spends time in jail and ultimately becomes the head of Pharaoh's house. And ultimately there's the famine that drives the future Israelites, the house of Abram down to Egypt. And they encounter their brother who it turns out is alive. And he says, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. And in, in Genesis 50, they meet him. Then Joseph fell on his father's face and wept and kissed him. And Joseph commanded his servants, the physicians, to embalm his father. So the physicians embalmed Israel. Forty days were required for it. That's how many were required for the embalmings. And when the days of weeping for him were past, Joseph spoke to the household of Pharaoh, saying, I have now found favor in your eyes. Please speak in the ears of Pharaoh, saying, My father made me swear, saying, I'm about to die. And further it went. And they got to God's good purpose. When Joseph's brothers in verse 15 saw their father was dead, they said, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil we did to him. So they sent messengers saying, your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgressions of your brother. Brothers, they're lying. But he come, comes back to them and says, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. God just has a plan for all of us. He's got a plan for the nations. I mean, just think about this. He, he told Abram that the Israelites would be in Egypt for 400 years because the iniquity of the Amorites was not complete. He, he needed essentially to move them to Egypt to protect them from the Amorites and let the Amorites sort themselves out and collapse and become weak so they could then come back and, and take the promised land. It was all part of the plan put in place before the time itself began. And so here I am in my miserable job and I get a call out of the blue from a woman who had gotten me on TV and says, would you come work at CNN? And I work at CNN and I fall into a radio show that I didn't expect to be in and they hear me in Atlanta and they give me a job and I've been here for 11 years. And along that way, my wife is misdiagnosed and told she's got six months to live the week before Christmas. And you fast forward 10 years from 2006 to 2016. And the same people who realized she had been misdiagnosed call and say, you know what? We actually think you might have lung cancer. And she does. There's no cure for it. But because they caught it early through that misdiagnosis 10 years earlier, they're able to keep it from spreading right now with a special medicine. God's got a plan may not be the one you want. It may not be the one you expect. You may be miserable where you are right now, but sometimes, you know, the Israelites were miserable in Egypt. They were there for 400 years, and God said it's for their own good. I'm keeping them there because of the Amorites, but I'll bring them back out. And so even now, I get frustrated sometimes with the pace of my career and wanting to grow syndication. i got to remind myself, God's got a plan. He's got a plan for you. He's got a plan for me. He's got a plan for the world. He's got a plan for the country. And so we shouldn't be angry. We should be trusting in him. And I, I said this the other day, and I got so many emails, so many text messages, so many direct messages from so many people who needed to hear that. And I, apparently there are a lot of people out there right now with COVID and lockdowns and frustrations and businesses going under, and they're sweating it out with paycheck after paycheck. And will they get the next paycheck and costs are going up and they're able to buy less and groceries are more expensive. They're like, what the hell is going on with my life right now? I don't know what's going on with your life. I don't know what's going on with my life, to be honest with you. 
But I know God's got a plan because I've seen it time and time again. It's reflected in Scripture itself, and it's reflected in my life. And if you just follow along and pay attention and maybe pray a little, you're going to see it in your life. So don't sweat the small stuff right now because he's already doing it. It's all part of a plan we don't understand. This hour of the program brought to you by First Liberty Building and Loan. Wherever you are nationwide, they want to help your business grow. If you need a loan to build a building or buy a building or buy a fleet of vehicles or something big like 500000 and up, they know how to get these loans done and they make their own lending decisions where a lot of banks right now are skittish to help businesses grow. They're not. Uh, so reach out to them, spend a few minutes with them on the phone, see if they're a good fit for you and you for them. FirstLibertyGA.com is their website, FirstLibertyGA.com. You can get all the contact info. Tell them I sent you. Uh, the Frost family, they've been doing this since the mid-90s, early 90s, and they're just good people anyway. They really are. I just adore that family, and they do good work. FirstLibertyGA.com. All right. I, I uh, deviated from everything I'm going to do. Let me let me do this one because, gosh, I'm going to get hate mail, so I might as well get it on with the day. I'm already getting it. Y'all, I don't care about climate change. I don't. Talk about it enough, you would think I care about it, but I feel like I, I have to reiterate that I really don't care about it. The media is all in on it. Earth's climate went off the rails in 2021, according to Axios. They say reports show global warming became local to a new and devastating extent in 2021 with the year ranking as the sixth warmest on record. Wait a second. You know, it wasn't the most, it wasn't the warmest. It wasn't the hottest. What, what's going on here? I thought it just went up and up and up and up. Nope. Sixth. You know, I'm in the camp that says, yeah, okay. World's getting warmer. The climate's changing. The climate's always changed. It's certainly changing now. And yeah, maybe we have a role, but I don't care. Adapt. I mean, the plans, when you look out there, the plans the environmentalists want is for us to give up our way of life when they're not going to get China or India to give up their way of life. So they've gotten so extreme about it, they're encouraging eco-terrorism now. you got the New York Times, the New Yorker, the London Review of Books, and others fawning over eco-terrorism and, and questioning whether or not democracy is a good thing for the planet. I don't care about climate change, and you shouldn't either. There's no reason to. Live your life. You don't have to be a polluter. You don't have to be messy. You can go recycle. We recycle. But my goodness gracious, the, the obsession and the hand-wringing over this stuff right now, trying to scare you, and so much of what they always predict never comes true. It's fear scenarios. There are reasonable things we could do, you know. There are, but they don't want to talk about the reasonable things. They want to talk about the nightmare scenarios to scare people into destroying capitalism and the free market and embracing some level of authoritarian command and control markets. And count me out. Don't care about it. Leave me alone. You're not going to make me care on this one. I'm sorry. We've got some breaking news I got to hit for you right now. It literally has just happened while we've been in commercial break here at the bottom of the third hour. It is, uh, if you're listening live, it's 2.35 p.m. Eastern time. Uh, this is breaking news. The United States Supreme Court has just tossed the OSHA mandate. The question presented to the court is whether the act plainly authorizes the secretary's mandate. It does not. The act empowers the secretary to set workplace safety standards, not broad public health measures, is a direct quote from it, uh, permitting OSHA to regulate the hazards of daily life simply because most Americans have jobs and face those same risks while on the clock would significantly expand OSHA's regulatory authority without clear congressional authorization. This is a per curiam opinion, meaning uh, it's an unsigned opinion 
There is a concurrence from Justice Gorsuch with Justice Thomas and Alito. I, I literally, I am scrolling this and reading as I go through. Uh, the question, this is from Gorsuch. The question before us is not how to respond to the pandemic, but who holds the power to do so? The answer is clear. Under the laws that stands today, that power rests with the states and Congress, not OSHA. In saying this much, we do not impugn the intentions behind the agency's mandate. Instead, we only discharge our duty to enforce the law's mandates where it comes to the question of who may govern the lives of 84 million Americans. Respecting those demands may be trying in times of stress, but if this court were to abide them only in more tranquil conditions, declarations of emergency would never end and the liberties of our Constitution separation of powers seek to preserve would amount to little. There is a dissent from Breyer, Sotomayor, and Kagan. Uh, I am reading their dissent here, and I'll just skip down to the bottom here because I'm curious as to whether Robert said anything else. Um, he says, there is the court. Its members are elected by and accountable to no one. We lack the background, competence, and expertise to assess workplace health and safety. When we are wise, we know enough to defer on matters like this. When we are wise, we know not to displace the judgments of experts asking within the sphere Congress marked out and under presidential control. Uh, so this is a pure curia, meaning that the chief justice is particularly in himself silent. Uh, now, as this is coming out, it appears there is a question as well as to whether or not uh, the nope, 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 uh, the court is allowing uh, this happening now, right now, uh, 6-3 decision that the court is allowing a vaccine mandate for workers in the workplace of uh, that are federally funded healthcare opinions. Uh, now, let's see how this one works out. Uh, this is per curiam as well. This opinion on now, remember, there were two separate ones. There were two separate ones. Um, and these two separate ones were one OSHA whether or not in, in workplaces of 100 or more could a mandate for vaccine be put in place. The second one was in healthcare settings that receive federal money, could the government impose it? Uh, there is a dissent. It is Justices Thomas, Alito, Gorsuch, and Barrett. In other words, Kavanaugh and Roberts sided with the liberals on the issue of um, the healthcare workers, healthcare workers. Uh, but Kavanaugh and Roberts sided with the conservatives on the OSHA mandate. They split the baby largely, very Solomonic of the Supreme Court. Let me get back into the procurium on the OSHA one. That's the one most of you are going to care about here. This reads like it was written by Kavanaugh or Roberts. Now, the reason I say that is because Kavanaugh and Roberts are deeply focused on procedure and how the impact of agencies and Congress interact more so than any of the other justices. In fact, Kavanaugh made his career on the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals being someone who engaged in a lot of Chevron analysis, Chevron being a case that essentially says you have to allow agencies to interpret rules when Congress gives them broad authority. And Kavanaugh has been saying, we got to roll this back. We got to roll this back. Roberts as well has made this case. This reads like a Roberts-Kavanaugh uh, per curiam. Let, let me just read you some of this. And I realize this is legalese. I want to put this in, in common language. But the cool thing about Roberts and Kavanaugh, honestly, whether you like them or not, they write in a way for everyone to understand them as best they can. This I'm reading now. This just came out from the Supreme Court in the last 10 minutes. The Secretary of Labor, acting through the Occupational Safety and Health Administration, recently enacted a vaccine mandate for much of the nation's workforce. 
the mandate, which employers must enforce, applies to roughly 84 million workers, covering virtually all employers with at least 100 employees. It requires that covered workers receive a COVID-19 vaccine, and it preempts contrary state laws. The only exception is for workers who obtain a medical test each week at their own expense and on their own time and also wear a mask each workday. OSHA has never before imposed such a mandate, nor has Congress. Indeed, although Congress has enacted significant legislation addressing the COVID-19 pandemic, it has declined to enact any measure similar to what OSHA has promulgated here. Many states, businesses, and nonprofit organizations challenged OSHA's rule in courts of appeals across the country. The Fifth Circuit initially entered a stay. When the cases were consolidated before the Sixth Circuit, that court lifted the stay and allowed OSHA's rule to take effect. Applicants seek emergency relief from the court, arguing that OSHA's mandate exceeds its statutory authority and is otherwise unlawful. Agreeing that applicants are likely to prevail, we grant their application and stay the rule. What that means is that this isn't settled. This now has to go back to court where there has to be a full argument as to whether or not it's constitutional or not. But because the court believes that the applicants are likely to prevail, that it is unconstitutional, they're going to halt the rule and let other courts decide, which pretty much means this is dead. Now, let me read for you a little more here. Congress enacted the Occupational Safety and Health Act in 1970. The act created OSHA, which is part of the Department of Labor. As its name suggests, OSHA is tasked with ensuring occupational safety, that is, safe and healthful working conditions. It does so by enforcing occupational safety and health standards promulgated by the Department of Labor. Such standards have to be reasonably necessary or appropriate to provide safe or healthful employment. They must also be developed under a rigorous process. The act contains an exception to those ordinary notice and comment procedures for emergency temporary standards. Such standards may take immediate effect upon publication of the Federal Register. They are permissible, however, only under narrow circumstances. The Secretary of Labor must show, one, that employees are exposed to grave danger from exposure to substances or agents determined to be toxic or physically harmful or from new hazards, and two, the emergency standard is necessary to protect employees from that danger. Prior to COVID-19, the secretary had used this power nine times before and never to issue a rule this broad. Of those nine emergencies, six were challenged in court. Only one was upheld. Then they go through the history of this, and they go through the legal history. And then they get to this. Applicants are likely to succeed on the merits of their claim that the secretary lacked authority. Agency rules are creatures of statute. They accordingly possess only the authority Congress has provided. The Secretary of Labor has ordered 84 million Americans to obtain a COVID vaccine or undergo weekly medical testing at their own expense. This is no everyday exercise of federal power. 
It is instead a significant encroachment into the lives and health of vast numbers of employees. We expect Congress to speak clearly when authorizing an agency to exercise powers of vast economic and political significance. There can be little doubt that OSHA's mandate qualifies as an exercise of such authority. The question then is whether the act plainly authorizes the Secretary of Labor's vaccine mandate. It doesn't. The act empowers the Secretary to set workplace safety standards, not public health measures. The dissent protests that we are imposing a limit found no place in the governing statute. Not so. It is the text of the agency's organic act that repeatedly makes clear that OSHA is charged with regulating occupational hazards and the safety and health of employees. The Solicitor General doesn't dispute that OSHA is limited to regulating workplace dangers. She instead argues that the risk of contracting COVID qualifies as such a danger. We cannot agree. Although COVID-19 is a risk that occurs in many workplaces, it is not an occupational hazard. COVID-19 can and does spread at home, in schools, during sporting events, and everywhere else people gather. That kind of universal risk is no different from the day-to-day dangers that all face from crime, air pollution, or any number of communicable diseases. Permitting OSHA to regulate the hazards of daily life, simply because most Americans have jobs and face those same risks while on the clock, would significantly expand OSHA's regulatory authority without clear congressional authorization. The dissent contends that OSHA's mandate is comparable to a fire or sanitation regulation imposed by the agency. But a vaccine mandate is strikingly unlike the workplace regulations OSHA imposes. A vaccine, after all, cannot be undone at the end of the workday. Contrary to the dissent's contention, imposing a vaccine mandate on 84 million Americans in response to a worldwide pandemic is simply not part of what the agency was built for. That's not to say OSHA lacks authority to regulate occupational-specific risks related to COVID, where the virus poses a special danger because of the particular features of an employee's job or workplace. Targeted regulations are permissible. We don't doubt, for example, OSHA could regulate researchers who work with the COVID-19 virus. So, too, could OSHA regulate risks associated with working in particularly crowded or cramped environments. But the danger present in such workplaces differs in both degree and kind from the everyday risk of contracted COVID-19 that every single person faces in or out of a job. OSHA's indiscriminate approach fails to account for this crucial distinction between occupational risk and risk more generally. And accordingly, the mandate takes on the character of a general public health measure rather than an occupational safety or health standard. They go on from there. It is telling that OSHA, in its half-century of existence, has never before adopted a broad public health regulation of this kind, addressing a threat that is untethered in any causal sense from the workplace. This lack of historic precedent, coupled with the broad and breadth authority that the Secretary of Labor now claims, is a telling indication that the mandate extends beyond the agency's legitimate reach. There you have it. I want to note a couple of things on my own here, having just read through this. One, I appreciate that the United States Supreme Court, I just read you this and I didn't have to explain anything to you. All I did was cut out citations to cases and laws. They wrote it in such a way that you can read it and understand it. 
What they're saying is that Congress gave OSHA broad powers to regulate occupational uh, safety and work hazards. And COVID-19 may be a work hazard, but it is not specific to work. COVID-19 is a global pandemic that affects you anywhere. Schools, churches, playgrounds inside, uh, workforces, sporting events, shopping at the grocery store, you name it. And that is not an occupational hazard. It's a life hazard. And OSHA doesn't have the power to regulate life in general. They've never done it before, and that's a hint that they don't have the power to do it because there have been plenty of pandemics in the past after OSHA was created. This is an easy-to-understand opinion from the court. The other one, by the way, is also easy to understand, even if conservatives, myself included, don't like it, that uh, the federal government funds healthcare agencies. They are allowed to mandate healthcare procedures. They have mandated the vaccine. Therefore, if you work in healthcare in an area that gets federal money for that healthcare, they can tell you to get the vaccine, whether you like it or not. Uh, oh, by the way, this is this is a big tip-off that we should not have universal public health care in this country because then the federal government's agencies could fundamentally control your life in ways they can't now. Uh, we should be remindful, mindful of this, and to some degree, it appears in the per curiam I'm skimming it, that there are some hints there that uh, you don't want to go down the road of universal public health care because of the issue of control. Once an agency starts funding something, they got a lot of control here. But OSHA doesn't fund your workplace. Therefore, OSHA can't enforce this stuff. It is commendable of the court to rule this way on OSHA. It is commendable of the court to write in such a way that you don't have to have a lawyer explain it to you. I literally just read you the case. And it also should go to employers out there who have hidden behind OSHA to give them no room and realize, encourage your employees to get vaccinated. But there's no reason for a mandate, particularly now when the Omicron variant is breaking through even the vaccinated, causing the vaccinated to also spread it to other vaccinated people. Just treat it like the cold and flu season that you did five years ago, four years ago, before COVID hit. Go back to your life. Live normally. Go back to the office. Stop worrying about it. Just wash your hands and don't go to work if you're sick. Hello there. Welcome back. Now, it looks like I, I may have said something wrong about the um, the decisions uh, where Kavanaugh and Roberts lined up on this. But uh, bottom line here at the end of the show, I, I've, I've run along. My apologies to those of you on the phone. I need to get to the breaking news here, uh, which is if you're just tuning in, uh, the Supreme Court has thrown out the OSHA vaccine mandate. They have allowed the CMS vaccine mandate. That is the mandate for uh, hospitals and healthcare workers who receive federal money. It's a really big deal. And what is remarkable here is that in the procurium decision on OSHA, it genuinely, and I, I would encourage any of you who want it to read it because it is a remarkably easy read. It truly is. In fact, let me do this while I'm on the fly here. Uh, give me one minute because it takes me just a second to get this done. Uh, I want to I want to do this for you uh, so that you can see it here. Um, SCOTUS OSHA rule uh, decision. 
I'm going to set this up so that I can text messages out. It just takes me a second to do it. I want to do it on the fly so you guys can have it handy. If you want to read it, I, I would encourage you to read it. Um, okay, there you go. If you text the word data to 33777, the first link back is going to be the SCOTUS OSHA decision. Uh, and I, I would tell you, you start reading, just 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 get out of your mind all the citations to cases and statutes. It is really easy to understand. And the bottom line is that Congress never intended to give agencies broad powers. OSHA is not a public health care agency. It is an occupational hazard agency. And when there is a situation that is a hazard at work, that is a hazard everywhere else in society, that falls outside OSHA's rules unless Congress specifically gives them power. That's the logic of the case. You can read it for yourself. You don't need anybody to read it for you. It is that easy to read. It genuinely is a supremely easy case to read. And I am delighted with the outcome. I, I, I think they got the uh, healthcare one wrong. That being said, uh, it's understandable why they did it that way. And uh, the Supreme Court, though, protecting you from the big hand of government in OSHA.